I want to take you back only, you know, only 3,400 years, if I might. And I want to show you a prime example of God's people and the consequences of what happens when they experience what we call mission creep. In other words, the mission that they had originally, it, it becomes like a possession. Now it's just the same old thing. We see it every day. So here's the history behind it. We're looking at the book of Judges. We had just looked one week at the book of, of, of Joshua. Now, a really fast forward through the book of Judges. Now, Moses, in the book of Exodus, sets uh, God's people free. And they had been uh, slaves in Egypt for probably about 400 years. And in those 400 years, they cry out to the Lord, and he finally delivers them through Moses. But once they are in the wilderness, what happens? Well, their freedom becomes just another possession. Their freedom says, oh, that's okay for them, but we want more than just being free. So they take it as just another possession, and and that is what they are left with. Because they forget God, they forget what God has done for them, they forget the gifts that he has given them, they forget the provision that he has uh, allowed them to have, both food that they didn't have and meat that they didn't have, That whole generation drifts from its mission, and they die in the wilderness over a 40-year period. The next leader is Joshua, and he comes to lead a new generation, and they promise to serve the Lord under Joshua, unlike what their parents did not do under Moses. And under Joshua, they enter Israel and take possession of it. But it means that they have to expel the current residents, And sometimes, as they go through this process, they see that God performs great miracles. We'll mention a couple just a little later on. To get to this land that God has promised them, God performs one or two miracles. But most often, they win it the usual way. They're in battles that they win. So Joshua really is the ending of an era. And it says this in Joshua chapter 21, verses 30, 30, uh, 30, 43 to 44. So the Lord gave Israel all the land that he had sworn to their forefathers, and they took possession of it and settled. Big word there, settled there. The Lord gave them the rest, uh, gave them rest on every side, meaning their enemies were pushed out, just as he had sworn to their forefathers. So they take possession of the land, they settle in, and they begin to make it theirs. Now, just a, 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 a couple chapters later, it says that after these things, where they're dividing up the land, after these things, Joshua the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110. And this depicts the end of a defined mission and a, and a recognized leader that they had followed. So as long as Joshua was alive, they say, Yes, we will follow you. And Josh is the one who stood in front of the people and he said, Look, the chances are we go into this promised land, you're going to drift from God. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And they say, We will too. We will too. We'll serve the Lord with you. And they do for that generation. During that generation, they have rest from their enemies. And then begins the season of settling. And it says in Judges chapter 2, verse 6, After Joshua had dismissed the Israelites, they went to take possession of the land, each to his own inheritance. Each tribe gets an allotment. Uh, Canaan has been divided up. 
And each one gets a certain region of this promised land. And, and among those, each region is divided by families. So while they are conquering the land, understand that they focus on the mission. They focus on the mission that they will only achieve as an army. Uh, they will only get as an army this land. So they remain unified and they fight together. But then when the land is allotted to the different families, they split up. Some go back across the Jordan, and now there are 12 different tribes. And here's where you see the difference between taking and occupying. When they receive their allotment, the whole focus begins to change. And now they make their living off the assigned property. Most of them moved into homes that had been abandoned or cities who, you know, that, that had been abandoned because the people were thrust out. So they were abandoned by the previous occupants. There's a senator in Massachusetts, Elizabeth Warren, and she's famous for this phrase. When she's talking to big companies, she wants them to know that all the infrastructure around them is, did not come from them. She uses, you didn't build that home. You didn't build that plant. You didn't build that road. And, and, and this is essentially what the people of God have to understand. They did not do it. But it wasn't the government who did, them, did it for them. It was God who did it for them. And so God could actually say to them, as well as Joshua, you didn't build that that home. No, you didn't plant that crop. You didn't tend that vineyard. You didn't shepherd that flock. God did this for you. God wins it for them. So you'd think that they would wake up as if it was a new car in front of them. They'd wake up every morning and thank God. Oh, Lord, thank you so much for giving to us, to me, all of this property that I have, all of these crops that I'm tending. But they have mission creep. They begin to be just like me. They have to maintain it. They have to take care of it. They have to repair it. And it's more like them. It's more theirs now. So the gifts are eventually taken for granted. And what develops is that idea of mission creep. I, I have mission creep. The whole nation gets mission creep because it says in Judges 2.10, it says, after that whole generation had been gathered to their fathers, this is the generation that fought for the land. Another generation grows up, and this is how that generation grows up. This is, this is the, the second generation in the promised land. And it says this about them, who knew neither the Lord nor what, the, what he had done for Israel. So that entire generation, not just fights with Joshua, but promises to continue to follow God and God alone. And they keep that promise, but their children do not. And by the way, not all of them keep that promise, but their their children, even to a lesser degree. So they grow up, the children, uh, grow up worshiping the other gods of Canaan and forgetting the great stories of their parents. They forget about the, you know, crossing the Red Sea on dry, on, on dry ground. Uh, they forget about the, the, the miraculous damming of the Jordan River in, in flood season so they could cross the Jordan also on dry ground. They forget about the walls falling down in Joshua with just a shout and some trumpets. They forget all of those stories because now they're talking about themselves. 
This is the here and now. This is what I have to do today. This is what's involved with me and for my, my not, not just my daily bread, but for my future and for my family's future. We've experienced that. More than that, we've experienced that as a nation. My parents used to tell me the stories of what it was like to live in the United States during World War II. They told me about gas rations, you know, food rations. They, they, they told me about turning in scrap metal so that it could go towards the war effort and buying war bonds even though you got nothing back for them. And I used to listen to those once or twice and, and go, wow, that was amazing. But about the third or fourth time, you know, I've heard this before. It's not that exciting anymore. More than that, uh, it was my mom and dad telling me, okay? So it, it just doesn't go across as well. But during that season, that season of World War II and soon afterwards, we had never experienced a unity in this nation that we did during that time. Now, I'm a baby boomer. And I have to admit that we baby boomers have had to sacrifice little in comparison to the greatest generation. They sacrifice much. But as a baby boomer, I sacrifice little. Um, you know, uh, I'm, I'm a privileged generation. I've had far more than my parents ever dreamed of having. And we're also the largest generation, so what we say used to go. And when Vietnam comes around and we have a war in Vietnam, we, we almost have a civil war again in this own nation. The same thing happens to Joshua and the next generation after him. There is no big mission, just a personal mission. Occupy the land, make a living in the land, and get ahead. It turns into something that deals with themselves, not with the entire nation. And so it says this in Judges chapter 2 verse 12, They forsook the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of Egypt, and they followed various gods of the peoples around them. You see that they drift from God. And they pick up the gods of that region. Their parents knew that they would not even be a nation today, or in that day, without God's help, without Moses and Joshua leading them, and God providing leaders like Moses and Joshua. They drift from God. They also drift from their own national identity. It says this about four times in Judges, but here's, here's what one of them says. In those days, Israel had no king, and everyone did as he saw fit. They were not a Hebrew nation or an Israelite nation as much as they were tribes. Simeon, Reuben, Reuben Benjamin, Judah... They go to their own allotment, and they stick there, and they become like mini-nations, like city-states. Uh, and, and then they find themselves fighting among each other, one tribe against another tribe. And then raiders start to come in from these nations to their sides. And, and these raiders pick on one tribe or another tribe, and the other 11 don't come to help all the time. And so there is this pattern that continues for over three centuries where tribes are invaded or even occupied. They lose territory and they're under the authority of of this foreign nation. And it is the result 
of God removing his protection. Now, he doesn't abandon them, but he removes his protection from them because they are worshiping other gods. Hey, I get it. Don't you? I mean, if you are God, hey, you're going to worship another God? I've got, I've got some people around here that really do like me. I'm going to spend my time blessing them. So he removes his, his protection and things go from bad to worse. And they are not one nation under God. They're not even one tribe under God. Nor are they one family under God. Nor are they one husband or one father under God. They become a nation of individuals that seek individual welfare. And individual morality. And individual faith. Everyone does as he sees fit. Aren't you glad that never happens? It's the law of personal, you know, sort of personal engagement or personal advancement. You do have to look after number one. There's nothing wrong with wanting to advance your place in life. But there is something wrong by making a choice. I'm going to leave God behind to do that. So God has a covenant solution with them. This is what it says in Judges 2.14. In his anger against Israel, the Lord handed them over to the raiders who plundered them. So it seems like where before they were defeating all these nations under the leadership of Joshua. Now, generations later, these nations come back and they defeat and attack the Israelites. And they come in raiding bands or invading armies. And Judges makes it clear. That the protection and favor that God gives them, he now removes when they turn their back on him. They choose other gods to worship, and God lets them reap the consequences of not trusting in him. They transition, you might say, from inheriting a land that was given to them by God to losing a land in little bits. And if this trend continues, the nation will no longer exist. It will be under pagan control again. I want to say this, and you know how the story turns out. I mean, we're here today, and the church is thriving, and whatever, but God is not through yet with Israel, and God is not, and he won't be through with Israel. In the same way, God is not through with his church, even if individual churches or churches in certain countries like France, like we heard last week, even though those churches are hurting, He is not through with straying Christians who are not following Jesus for that season. He's not through with me when I stray from him. He's not through with you. He's God. And he has made an eternal covenant with you. And this is not about, you know, the people's sin. You see, it's not because of your sin as much as it is of God saying, I'm God. I will remain the same no matter what. I cannot be different. I make a covenant with you. I make a promise to you. I will keep it. And here's how he keeps it. Here's the strategy. He raises up judges who save them out of the hands of these raiders. And in comes a series of, of leaders who, who tend to lead for just uh, their own lifetime. So th- what you have is a period of these judges being raised up. There's peace in their lifetimes, and, and, and so, and then when these judges die off, it goes back to the people seeking their own welfare. 
Now, you know some of these judges. You, you don't know many of them by name, but you, when I mention the names Gideon and Samson, you know who I'm talking about, okay? Great warriors, uh, great leaders. But every time you, you understand that each of them is flawed. Now, one of my favorites is a woman. A woman judge named Deborah. And, and I love Deborah because when it comes time, she's sort of organized the nation and is leading the nation. It comes time for a battle. You know what she does? She goes to a male general and she goes, now look, tradition says you should be leading this army. And the general says, well, no, I'll let you do it. Okay, I'll do it, but I want you to remember from now on, they're going to say, you got beaten by a girl. Now, I paraphrase that, but that's essentially what she said. <laughs> you let a girl take over. And she was the judge for a series of, of, of year or of decades. So uh, she's my favorite because she gave the men the way out and they didn't want it. So uh, these, judge, these judges go and they defeat the invaders. They rule over Israel for the rest of their lives. And, and then when they die, the nation reverts back to its old ways, doing whatever each person sees fit for himself. And the pattern continues. The, the, the last judge is not one that I would recommend. Uh, well, you read it to your children, but understand, you got to say now, don't be like Samson. I mean, he was a great person, but don't be like him. Because he was like a wreck-it Ralph who never had a, you know, a, a return in his life. He was great at defeating the Philistines all by himself, but he, his ego was too big to let God get in the way and rule his life. So that, that great judge dies. Then there's a new rejection of God's authority. And people go and ask again, okay, I have some choices to make. Here's my core value. What's in it for me? How does this choice and how, which whatever way I make this choice, uh, how will it get me ahead? And they never seem to be asking God, what do you want? Or God, what is your will? Or how, how can your glory be displayed through all this? And so because the next generation does not follow God like the first one, uh, then there is a new threat and God raises up a new judge. But God keeps his promise. He will never leave nor abandon his people. He keeps that promise continually. Though the nation of Israel and each individual tribe experiences the consequences of putting themselves in the leadership of their lives and expelling God from his true position. So I'm, I'm reading this. Every April and May, I read Judges. And um, as I read through it this year, and I understood, and I was observing the, like the difference between the unity of Joshua and the disunity and the self-centeredness of judges. And how, a, you know, one person would be raised up just for a, a lifetime and then they'd go back. Uh, I, I was asking, Lord, what's the lesson of this? What are you trying to tell me? More than that, how can I avoid judges in my life? How can I avoid being one of those who does what he sees fit just for himself? And uh, 
you know, as I'm praying through this and I'm reflecting on it, uh, I have some thoughts that continually resonate with me, and I, I, I hope these will, will help you too. And I'm calling them my own covenant with God. And, and you, if you are new to Bergen Park Church at, at this time, I just want you to know we've been through a wonderful season here. It's great to be in this facility. But um, we have to understand that a covenant means that you get these, these values right. You put God in his right place. And uh, I, I, I saw a great parallel between a new facility and the land of Canaan. And, and I want to share what that parallel is. You see, God's ultimate goal for his people was not that they would have a land, but the land would be a tool for them. A tool to get something done for God. God had bigger thoughts than just them having a land. And so I was looking at this facility and trying to remind myself, we have worked so hard to get here and get get here. And yet when it's all over now that we're in, it's still a tool. It was a goal to get in, but it's a tool. We wanted to have this tool, this facility, so we could do better ministry in our community. And better ministry to one another. And each of these things that we listed that we wanted as a better ministry, we could not do well in our old facility. For Israel, the land of Canaan was a tool to let God's people thrive and grow so they could walk with God in freedom and not under great stress. And for us, this building is a tool that we wish to use to honor God and not ourselves. But the facility is not the ultimate mission. What's the mission? From the beginning of the time of of Abraham, God makes this promise to Abraham. Out of you, I'm going to give you this land. And out of you being in this land, I am going to build a great nation. The issue was not so much the property, but the people. It wasn't so much where you're going to settle, which was important, but it was mainly who would the people be who would be in this land. So our mission is similar to that of the Hebrews. God promises Abraham that his descendants would be numbered like the stars in the sky. In other words, go ahead. One, two, three. You'll never get done. And then more than that, Galileo will invite telescopes and you'll go on and on and on. You'll never be able to number them all. So he's saying that what he wants is more followers of Jesus who he will send for us. That the land was designed to be given to God's people so it could hold the great numbers like the stars in the sky. And that's our mission. Our mission is creating and developing and growing followers of Jesus that grow beyond numbering. And we will be playing a part in that. We want this community to know that there is a God who sends a son to redeem us, and this son does just what he says. We want this community to know that what we are hoping to do in this facility is not to reflect on us so much, but our great God, and and bring him greater honor. So when someone asks if we should be doing something, some some new work at Bergen Park Church or some new ministry, the question that we need to ask is, does it help to increase and strengthen the kingdom of God? 
Where is it going to take us? Not what will it tell the community about Bergen Park Church, but what will it tell them about our God? And so I have to see that my part, my part in this is I'm like a soldier under Joshua. I'm taking the land, but I'm taking the land so it would be filled with God's people. I want to say this. This is not 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 necessarily equals all the time. But God's ground, God's real ground, is more of God's people. And my part as a soldier is to help create an environment where God's people will thrive and multiply. God wants more followers. I think I said this two weeks ago, but let me say it again. There's a church um, that I have heard recently that says, you know, our goal is to make sure that heaven is very crowded. I like that. To make sure that heaven is crowded. Isn't that a great phrase? More than that, I, you know, I hear a great phrase and I have to make it better. That's just who I am. I, I don't come up with great phrases, but I'm very good at taking one and making it just a little better. So I, I made that one a little better. And the other church hasn't called and asked me for what it is yet. And I don't want you to call them and tell them, you know, he just, Jim just, you know, improved on what you're saying. I want heaven to be crowded with souls who are welcomed, saying, well done. Well done. In other words, you lived your life pretty much the way that God wanted, and it's had an effect. Let me give you one of the accounts that's coming out of uh, the news in the last, uh, uh, the last few weeks. Uh, I know some of you here today are from uh, uh, the Washington, D.C., Baltimore area. And uh, some news has come out of there in the last two years that is going to have a great effect on the kingdom of God and people following Jesus like, uh, like I don't think you can yet imagine. We, when we mention the name Michael Phelps, He's a national hero winning more Olympic medals, not just in swimming, but in anything, than anyone in the history of the Olympics, at least that we know of. And and yet he admits that his own personal life was a train wreck. So he has all this fame. With that fame, of course, as an Olympic hero, you get all this money, all these endorsements. Uh, And yet it's not going well for him. And with all the fame, he's depressed, self-medicated, uh, drinking way too much alcohol. And, uh, and and then suddenly something happens to him. And he re- is reflecting back. And before I tell you what happened to him, let me tell you what he said in an interview on ESPN. Um, he, he, what he says is, I was a trainer. He's talking about his life in 2012, two years uh I mean, right after the Olympics. He goes, uh, I was a train wreck. I was like a time bomb waiting to go off. I had no self-esteem, no self-worth. There were times when I didn't want to be here. It was not good. I felt lost. He went on to say, because he got a DUI. And uh, <clears throat> and, and so with that, of course, it makes the um, it, it makes the headlines, especially on the East Coast. And, and so with that, it says he cut himself off from his family and other loved ones, and he thought the world would just be better off without me. I figured that 
was the best thing to do. Just end my life. After his DUI and and his conviction in it, he uh, he gets a visit from a man who's acted almost like an older brother to him. His name is Ray Lewis. Now, again, if you're from Baltimore, you know who Ray Lewis is. Uh, you didn't want to be on the other side of the football of Ray Lewis. Okay, he was an, not just an impressive, an overwhelming, uh, and probably soon to be Hall of Fame, a linebacker and the head of the whole defense, which was awesome under his leadership. Uh, Ray Lewis goes to Michael Phelps in a personal one-on-one visit, and he says to Michael, "You need to go into rehab." You will not get better unless you get away from everything and do rehab. And by the way, as you're there, I want to give you this book. So the book is Rick Warren's A Purpose-Driven Life, only 28 million sold in the last uh, 15 years. So he'd never heard of it, never seen it. That just tells you that here's a national hero, an Olympic, uh, uh, you know, uh, no better swimmer in our lifetime. And he'd never heard of it. So he gives it to him. Ray Lewis doesn't have any idea of you know how it's going to affect him. But uh, about uh, three or four days in, into his rehab, he gets a call from Michael. And he goes, where did you get this book, man? It's crazy. How come I've never heard of this before? And he goes on to share what the effect of this book has been. In that same ESPN interview, he says, Rick Warren's book turned me into believing there is a power greater than myself and there is a purpose for me on this planet. Now, I don't know about you, but if I had the fame he had, I, I would be thinking... Hey, just winning the medals would be enough. I'd be tempted to think that. But that's not all God has in store for anyone. And so he says this on an, on an interview. And if you've seen the other interviews, like on NBC, they just talk about, oh, he's turned his life around. Isn't that wonderful? Isn't that? And they never mention the book. And they never mention that he's turning to Jesus Christ. Now, I don't know how the story is going to end. We do, we do not know this. But we do know this. He's made attempts to uh, to reconcile with his father, who he had not spoken to since his father abandoned him at the age of 10. Uh, he has uh, come back to some old friends and tried to reconcile with them. He has a baby. He has a fiancé. And he's saying, I, I now am beginning to understand what it's all about. You see, God's ground is God's people. God wants heaven full. God's ground is not property or possessions. God's ground is the souls of men and women. And you as a soldier, similar to the days of of Joshua, what he's telling you to do is to please, please, please make sure that you are putting your focus on the lives of men and women, on the lives of those in your own home. Because God's ground is God's people. 
And as Michael takes the first steps into getting his new life and getting his faith together and this book that God uses, I, I just want to say starting September 1, uh, I'm going to do this again for 40 days. It'll be about my eighth time. Um, and we just happen to have some unsold copies from 2003 that we dug up. And if you would like to uh, go through this for 40 days starting September 1, uh, they're at the Connect Center. They cost us $15. Just take one. You can pay for it. If it does you any good, you'll be giving us thousands, won't you? Okay? So we, we figure that if you're going to do it. No! Come on! You get God straight in your life, you get generous. I mean, it's it's just a natural consequence, okay? So take it and read it. Leave money if you want, if you, if you don't want to hedge your bets, okay? <laughs> take it and leave it. But I'm going to be starting, and I'd love to know if you're going to do this with me. Please uh, let me know. You can email, email, email me at jim at bergenparkchurch.org. And starting September 1st, it's going to take me through about the 10th of October. I just want to do this. Some of you have done it in the past. Do it again. Dig it out. It seemed to help Michael. Maybe at this place in your life, it can get you refocused into what God is desiring for you. Let's pray. Almighty God, what a great, marvelous God you are. We thank you right now, Father, to to be reminded that when we're talking about unity versus self-centeredness, that at the center of the universe is a relationship between a father, a son, and a spirit who only know unity. Who have never argued with one another about who's first or who gets what. They have always worked together. And we know that the Father, Son, and the Spirit are working in the world today. Bringing souls to what you have originally intended them to be. One soul at a time. And usually it's not a sports hero. Maybe somebody who is uncoordinated, unknown, unemployed, maybe even undesirable. But Father, you send your son to do just this. To bring them in to the purposes that you have designed for their lives. And we marvel at how lives can change when you touch them. And we unite around that. In Jesus' name, God's people said, amen.